Frodo, Sam, Pippin, and Merry return at the end of The Lord of the Rings in the movies, uh, they come home changed, a very different people. When they left the Shire, they were just a ragtag bunch of mischievous friends, but now uh, they come home heroes. They've faced battles, they've faced hardship and loss, and they've become a band of brothers, and together they've helped save Middle-earth. But the hobbits left back in the Shire don't know any of that. And so as these four friends ride back into Hobbiton in all their regalia, their old neighbors are left staring at these oddballs. What, what, what are they playing at, you know, dressed up all like that? Who do they think they are? In Luke chapter 4, at Jesus' own homecoming, something like this happens. When he comes back to Nazareth, he's changed. He's, while he was away, he was baptized. The Father spoke from heaven and endorsed him, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Spirit descended upon him like a dove and empowered him for ministry, and he went then toe-to-toe against the devil in the wilderness and prevailed. And now Jesus returns north to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, ready to begin his ministry, and his old neighbors don't know what to do with him at all. In fact, they're quite threatened by him. Uh, We'll see this in just a moment, but they can't understand what he's on about. What is he playing at, Jesus, claiming to be all this? Just who does he think he is? So this is Jesus' homecoming, and it is at this moment that Jesus reveals who he is and why he's come, and it challenges everyone's perspective. So grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 down to 30. You'll find today's reading in the Pew Bible on page 859 to 860, 859 to 860. Again, Luke chapter 4, verses 14 down to 30. This is the word of the Lord. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, which is where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who have been oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not, is is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. 
And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. But when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Thanks be to the Lord for the reading of his word. Dr. Luke begins this passage with a summary statement in verses 14 and 15. He says, Jesus has returned in the power of the Spirit, which is a reference to the miracles that he's working. We'll get to those next week. Luke kind of summarizes that in verses 31 down to 44. Uh, But he's also teaching in the power of the Spirit in their synagogues. And that's the example we have before us today in verses 16 down to 30. And so that's where we're going to focus our attention. Uh, We're going to look through this passage with three headings. We're going to see the prophecy, the prejudice, and the peril this morning. The prophecy, the prejudice, and the peril. Would you bow your heads? Let's pray, and we'll jump in. Father, there's no one like Jesus. Jesus breaks all of our categories. He challenges our assumptions. He makes us look deep within to see if we've got things right. He corrects us and rebukes us. There's a humbling that comes in the presence of Jesus. And so, Father, give us hearts to receive him, to respond rightly, humbly, welcomingly to who he is today. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So first of all, the prophecy, the prophecy, verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as it was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Uh, So here Jesus is, he's back in his hometown among the family, friends, and neighbors that he grew up with. They watched him grow up from his childhood, and in keeping with his customary practice, on Sabbath, on Saturday, he goes to the synagogue, which is kind of like a Jewish church service, and in this case, it's his boyhood synagogue that is in Nazareth. Uh, It is in this very synagogue that Jesus would have recited every week the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It is here that he would have said his prayers with the people and listened to the scriptures as they were read each week, one reading from the law, another reading from the prophets. It is here that Jesus would have received teaching every week from the rabbis, spiritual instruction for his soul. It is here that he would have received the weekly benediction and blessing from the village leaders. But it is on this occasion, Jesus standing up now to read the scriptures for himself. This is a big moment. He probably has never done this before. He is now standing up as a rabbi, as a teacher, in order to read the scriptures. He chooses a selection from Isaiah 58, verse 6, and 61, verses 1 and 2, 
And this is what he reads, verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, in Isaiah's original context, this passage is all about the eschaton, the the last days, when the Lord will send his servant to bring the good news that God is making all things new. He is setting the world to rights. Where Israel had failed and fallen in Uh, into the exile, now the servant of the Lord will prevail and will usher in these days of renewal. Isaiah says the servant of the Lord will be anointed with the Spirit. And of course, we've just seen in, in the previous chapter the Spirit descending upon Jesus at his baptism and alighting upon him like a dove, right? It's not a coincidence here. Luke has put these passages side by side because he wants us to connect the dots. He wants us to see that Jesus, the baptized and anointed with the Spirit, Jesus, is in fact the servant of the Lord that Isaiah foretold and that Jesus is now quoting. Isaiah continues here and says, the servant of the Lord will proclaim good news. It's the same word for gospel that we get in the New Testament. He will proclaim good news to the poor. So to those who have absolutely nothing to their name, Jesus will come, the servant will come, and he will proclaim hope. God's salvation is at hand. The renewal of all things is dawning. The eschaton is drawing near. He will, again, Isaiah says, proclaim liberty to the captives. These words would have been especially poignant for Israel, who at this time, when when Isaiah is writing, were in captivity, in exile uh, at this very moment. And Isaiah say, no, there's a new exodus that's coming. You won't be stuck here forever. God's deliverance will come. His redemption will occur. It will show up. He continues that, that the servant of the Lord will proclaim recovery of sight to the blind. This is both a, a literal and a figurative sort of reference here. As God is setting the world to rights, it means that he will heal all the brokenness in this world, including restoring sight to people with blindness. But it also means the enlightening of those who are in spiritual darkness, whose, whose eyes have been blinded, uh, spiritually blinded, and as, as their eyes are open to the spiritual truth, the light of God's word, this will be fulfilled. The servant of the Lord will also set at liberty those who are oppressed. Set at liberty those who are oppressed. He will bring injustice to an end. He will lift up those who are so often trampled upon in this world. He will right every wrong that has ever been done. He will break the yoke of oppression. For when the kingdom comes and the days of renewal begin, as the eschaton draws near upon the earth, all shall be well. All shall be well. And then Isaiah finishes with this phrase, the servant of the Lord will, will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
You will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Every 50 years, Israel was supposed to celebrate the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee was when, the, when all the debts that had been amassed were forgiven in total, like national, nationwide bankruptcy, where everybody got a second chance. Any of the lands that you had that had been foreclosed on and lost from your family estate were now restored in full. It was a year of relief, a year of freedom, a year of new possibilities, a, a year of hope, a year of grace. And this year, though, is an even better year better than the year of jubilee. It is the year of the Lord's favor. It is a jubilee to end all jubilees. For in the year of the Lord's favor, all that is owed will be forgiven. All that is lost shall be found. All that is broken shall be made whole. All that is marred shall become beautiful. Everything sad will come untrue. The curse upon us will be broken. The promises given to us will be fulfilled. The throne that stands fallen and empty shall be restored. The festival of the Lord shall break forth for the year of the Lord's favor is at hand. This is what Jesus is talking about. Verse 20, he rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed upon him, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. <laughs> he sits down. This is the posture of a rabbi, a teacher, and every eye is riveted upon him. And he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's the shortest sermon ever. Yeah? Today marks the beginning of the end, Jesus says. The eschaton is dawning. The kingdom is at hand. The restoration of all things has begun because the days of renewal are here in Jesus. The days of renewal are here in Jesus. Do you, do you realize what he's saying here? He's saying, I am the servant of the Lord, the one that Isaiah foretold about. And I am here, and I am bringing with me the days of renewal you most long for. Wow. Now, on this side of the cross and resurrection, the ascension of Christ, where he goes and sits at the Father's right hand, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead, to return and restore all things, we can see clearly that this pro these promises are going to be fulfilled in two stages. Uh, through Jesus' first and second comings. Uh, in, in his first coming, the days of renewal are inaugurated, they have begun, but in his second coming, they will be consummated in all of their fullness. But the point that Jesus is making here right now is that his coming, his person, his incarnation, his arrival on planet earth means all of this has begun. The days of renewal are here in Jesus. The Father has sent him. The Spirit has anointed him. The good news is being proclaimed. The days of renewal are in fact here and it's all coming in the person of Jesus Christ. So that's the prophecy. 
That's the prophecy. Now, let's look at the prejudice. The prejudice. Verse 22, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Now, it's hard to see this in the English translation that we have, but there's a deliberate contrast between the first and second halves of this verse. On the one hand, they spoke well of Jesus. They marveled at the gracious words that he was speaking, literally his charismatic speech. So they like what he's saying, and they even like how he's saying it. But on the other hand, where they're stuck is who is saying this. They're glancing at one another, and they're saying, is, is that his Joseph's son? It's a, it's a question that's laced through with skepticism. That's, that's Joseph's boy? The, the, the one who grew up just down the street? He thinks he's bringing the renewal of all things. So like, who does he think he is? Who does he think he is? Verse 23, Jesus says to them, doubtless you will quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Well, we've heard you did at Capernaum. Do it here in your hometown as well. It's a little odd. It's very opaque to us. What's going on here? This, this proverbial saying, if you had to like summarize it, it basically means take your own medicine. We don't want it. We don't need it. And why would they say that? Well, if these verses that Isaiah wrote down all those years before that Jesus just quoted are indeed being fulfilled today in their hearing, then that means Jesus is the anointed servant of God, bringing the good news. He's proclaiming it to whom? To them. And that means in Isaiah, they're the poor. They're the captives, they're the blind, they're the oppressed, they're the indebted ones who need the year of Jubilee, you see? And they don't like that association. They're like, are you kidding me? We're not poor, we're not captive, we're not blind, we're not oppressed, we're not indebted here. Take your own medicine, Jesus. Physician, heal yourself. You're the one who needs help here. And if we're misjudging you, prove us wrong. Uh, we heard the rumors of what you did in Capernaum, the healings you did um, 40 miles away down the road. Are we not good enough to get a healing? Are we not good enough to have a miracle right here? We raised you. This is your hometown. You owe us. Do a miracle. And he says to them, verse 24, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Now, why did they struggle to believe in Jesus, huh? Just, just think with me. Think with me of what it would have taken for them to actually embrace these realities, to embrace that the kid down the street was, in fact, their savior, to, that the one they raised, helped raise, was the wisdom incarnate of God, that the friend they rubbed shoulders with in the neighborhood was the Messiah who had come to rescue them all. See, see, to embrace Jesus requires a humbling, doesn't it? It means recognizing that the person that looked like a peer is in fact way more important than they are, that he has something to offer them, and they, they are in great need. They have to start seeing themselves as poor in need of his riches. 
They need to see themselves as captives in need of his rescue. They need to start seeing themselves as blind and in need of his healing. They need to start seeing themselves as oppressed and in need of his deliverance. They need to realize their indebtedness and in their need of his redemption, you see. Because not only are the days of renewal here in Jesus, the days of humbling are here in Jesus as well. The days of humbling are here in Jesus. Friends, receiving Jesus always requires a humbling. You know this? You ha we have to admit we're not the experts. We don't know how to run our own lives. We're not good. We're not okay. We're a mess. We have to admit that we're helpless, that we're bankrupt, that we're bound and blinded, that we're trapped and impoverished, that we're desperate and condemned. And, and the only way that Jesus can help us, friends, is when we realize we're helpless, right? Physician, heal me. That's, that's what a humble soul would cry. Physician, heal me. But that is not the cry of Jesus' old neighbors because the prejudice that blinds their hearts is thick, you see. So we have the prophecy, now we have this prejudice, and then Jesus turns us to the peril, the peril. Verse 25, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. The, the story Jesus references here is from 1 Kings uh, 17, verses 8 to 24. 1 Kings 17, 8 to 24. And I, let me just give you a brief overview. The hearts of the people of Israel were hard at this time toward God. They weren't listening to him. They were very inhospitable to God's prophet, Elijah. And so God sent Elijah, who was hungry and starving, to uh, Zarephath, which is a town in the foreign land of Sidon, uh, which is notably outside the covenant of God, the people in Sidon, okay? This is a Gentile place. And there, were, there he finds a widow whose name has been lost to history, but who provided both water and food for Elijah to eat. And God blessed her for her faith so that her oil and water, her oil and flour didn't run out during the famine. And then when her son died, God actually brought him back to life. That's the first of these two stories. The second story is in verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Elisha was the prophet who came right after Elijah. And uh, he, this story is found in 2 Kings verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. 2 Kings 5, 1 to 14. And again, in this season, the hearts of the people were once again callous toward God and resistant toward the prophet uh, Elisha. But Naaman, who is a Syrian general, notably, note he's from another country, he's outside the covenant of God, he comes to Israel in search of God's healing mercies, and as he washes in faith in the Jordan River, his 
leprosy is cleansed away. Now, put these two together. What, What do these two stories have in common? What is Jesus' point? When Israel rejected the Lord's prophets, his mercies still came, but not to Israel, to the Gentiles instead. You see that? In both stories. And Jesus is saying, look, God can tell when he's not wanted. He won't crash your party. He's a gentleman. He will stand at the door and knock. And if you are not receptive to the graces that he is offering even now in me, in the servant of the Lord who is now speaking these words to you, God's mercies will still come, but not to you. They will go to the Gentiles who believe instead, just like in the days of Elijah and Elisha. And Jesus is saying, this is the great peril that lies before you this day. I have come, and with me comes the renewal of all things. But if you reject me, the one in whom all these promises are yes and amen, God's graces will still come, but not to you. They'll go to the Gentiles instead. And in many ways, friends, this is exactly what happens throughout the course of Jesus' ministry. He will face much rejection from his own Jewish people, and he will find surprising welcome and faith among the Gentiles. As John chapter 1 verses 11 to 12 say, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And for people who were just demanding that they receive miraculous proof and felt they were entitled to blessing, this warning goes down like curdled milk. (laughs) They're livid. How dare Jesus talk to them like this? How dare he warn them? that God's graces might go to those Gentile pigs instead of his own covenant people. Who does he think he is? Verse 28, then when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. It's amazing, isn't it? How fast people will turn against the ones who prick their consciences, isn't it? But passing through their midst, verse 30, he went away. You see, Jesus' time had not yet come. No one takes his life from him. He lays it down willingly of his own accord. And so somehow he slips beyond their their grasp. We see the sovereign protection of the father over his son's life here. But here's the crucial point. Here's the crucial point. The days of decision are here in Jesus. The days of decision are here in Jesus. Luke wants us to look at him, to hear his claims, to feel the force of his words. 
Jesus has come, and with him come the days of renewal, but they will only be ours if we humbly receive him. We have to admit that we are poor and in need of his riches. You see that? Will we do that? Will we admit that we're poor and in need of his riches? Will we admit that we're captive in need of his rescue? Will we admit that we're blind and in need of his healing? Will, will we admit that we're oppressed and we need his deliverance? Will we admit that we're indebted and we need his redemption? Will we cry out, physician, heal me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Or will we harden our hearts and attempt to silence the prophetic voice of the servant of the Lord? You see, the days of decision are upon us, and they are here in Jesus. That's the point of this passage. And the takeaway, the question that echoes in all of our hearts and minds is this. Will, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? There's, there's no more important question in life, friends. What will you do with Jesus? C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity expressed the decision that each of us face this way. He writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people, people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so I ask you again, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? It's the question on which everything hinges. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, there are moments like this when we are brought face to face with the realities of the claims of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I think we're too close to these claims for them to shock us, but they are shocking. If Jesus is who he says he is, all the world hinges on his person. And all our world depends on how we respond to him. If he is the incarnate son of God, come to lay down his life to pay for our sins, 
to rise again to make us right with you so that we might be your sons and daughters forever and inherit the the renewal of all things in the dawn of the new creation, in the eschaton, then all of life is about this, who Jesus is and why he came. And so, Father, would you grant us the mercy and grace of your humbling to stop living our own ways in self-reliance and pride, thinking we've got this all figured out, and desperately come to Jesus, who is the only Savior who could ever make us right with you. And so, Father, we want to respond. We want to admit that we are sinners far from you. We want to believe that Jesus has done everything to make us right with you. And we want to commit our lives to you and say, be my Savior, be my Lord, be my everything. We cling to Jesus, for he is our only hope. He is the servant of the Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.